At British Airways, we're recruiting in our ground operations team at London Heathrow. You'll have bags of responsibility as a valued colleague below the wing of our aircraft. Every touchdown and takeoff would not be possible without our brilliant team. So this is your chance to make a real difference and showcase your original skills and talents. New joiners will receive a £1,000 sign-on bonus, along with staff travel benefits from day one. Plus, we offer world-class training and career development opportunities. Bonus terms and conditions apply. Visit ba.com slash careers and apply now. V1. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Terrain. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, old Todd. Howdy. I'm glad to, to have you with me for another episode of, of Flight Safety Detectives. And we got a rather interesting one that uh, today, and it doesn't involve a pilot or a mechanic squirrel. <laughs> it's uh, unusual. But in today's event, we found an accident involving a helicopter and a truck, of all things. And it occurred in, uh, outside in uh, South America, where a running helicopter, a police helicopter, relatively new, was sitting there running, and a truck approached and drove right into the rotor blades. And it makes you wonder, you know, if you've driven in some foreign countries, uh, you don't wonder about the driver's experience, because that's always a an interesting adventure, but uh, clearly uh, the driver was at fault. We have a nice video of it, and uh, unfortunately the helicopter was totally destroyed. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, let me just describe in brief the video we're showing you. It actually shows the helicopter with uh, blades turning in the middle of a turning lane between two sides of a divided highway. And there's traffic on both sides of the road and people in close proximity, including the person who took this video. Now, my experience has been when you have a helicopter landing in a residential zone, a uh, middle of a highway, for example, a medevac helicopter at a, an accident site, traffic is stopped. There is control of the area. No one is allowed to be close to that helicopter because of obvious uh, safety issues with having rotating blades. But here you have people within a stone's throw of the helicopter, casually driving by, casually taking pictures. And if there had been people on the ground to stop traffic, and there were, because this was a police a helicopter and a police action, a coordinated action with a ground crew, uh, they had the resources to control the situation. The resources weren't used. 
And as we'll see as we talk about this some more, there are many things about this where there were ample opportunities for the crew to get things right. And because of poor procedures, poor practice, poor planning, this led to a situation where the truck and the helicopter occupied the same space at the same time. Yes. Well, in reading the report, you know, both the two pilots were properly licensed. They had uh, uh, experience, but they didn't have any experience landing and taking off from highways. So first, first obvious error on the part of the flight crew was trying to get the job accomplished uh, for the first time ever for the both of these pilots. So were they on a heightened level of awareness? You know, maybe, maybe not. They certainly weren't during the takeoff. They, you know, they got the helicopter down where they wanted it. And you would think that in a situation where you have an organization, a police organization, running the aviation operation, this is something that's run by some level of government. And you would suppose that that level of government would have adequate resources for training, maintenance, et cetera. And what was clear from reading the report was that it was unclear if even these people had relevant maintenance. For example, there was no record of the pilot in command having any sort of CRM training, cockpit resource management training. And there was no recent um, record of the second in command having that training. In fact, the last training he had was several years before, before he'd even joined this organization. So the kind of things are taken for granted with military, public use, and airline pilots is that they are being trained to essentially industry standard levels when it comes to how do you communicate in the cockpit? How do you communicate with people outside of the aircraft? On that point, the only real maintenance squawk on this aircraft was that the radio wasn't operating. That wasn't a problem, technically, because they had a portable radio with a crew person from the aircraft who was outside communicating between the helicopter and the police on the ground who were controlling traffic. But there was no evidence that this communication was used. There were hand signals and such going back and forth between them, but there was no specific verbal commands going back and forth. One of the things that should have been done was that the police forces on the ground should have controlled the traffic in and around this aircraft. And as those of you who can see the video earlier could see, there was no control. There was traffic going back and forth in front of this aircraft. By the way, this was an operation that is flying in this neighborhood, landing on, uh, on a roadway, which actually had been done the day before. So this was not an unfamiliar procedure for this organization but it was apparently an unfamiliar procedure to the extent that the crew didn't follow a lot of the procedures they should have been following. Right. Yeah, it's funny. It says in one place the crew didn't have the experience. The other place says they did it the day before. So that's interesting. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, this organization that did the accident investigation, and forgive me if I have the pronunciation of the acronym round, SANIPA is the Brazilian version of the NTSB or the AIB in Britain. They investigate accidents of all kinds. And in this case, this is what the NTSB would call a public use aircraft. It wasn't commercial. It wasn't private. It was a police helicopter. And John, you could speak to this. Uh, once upon a time, the NTSB would not have investigated this kind of accident. That's correct. Um, 
public use aircraft were for a long time exempt from everything. And they're still exempt from many things today. But uh, shortly before I went to the board, they started to to uh, investigate public use uh, accidents. You know, most people don't realize that in the U.S., uh, the Department of Interior has a huge air force that operates for them. So not only uh, they, I remember them having their own airplanes, but they also contracted with a number of entities to provide airplanes for them uh, different parts of the U.S. for different times of the year. And when they're flying for the uh, Department of Interior, they're at public use. So the FAA has no jurisdiction over them. And uh, it, it's a big it's a big loophole. Uh, both of us here, we're in Massachusetts. I have flown on the Massachusetts State Police helicopter 40 years ago, uh, multiple times. And, and just at the time I went to the NTSB, they crashed that very same helicopter in the Charles River, right in, in on the Boston-Cambridge line. So... That was an interesting accident that I was involved in with public use and with with officials, state officials, in this case, state police officials uh, that had control over the the air wing, so to speak, and uh, with no no experience in aviation. And they made a series of of two or three related management decisions that led to that crash. So it, in fact, we ought to do that one time, you and I, since it's in our backyard. So we'll save that one for another day. And those kinds of management issues were pointed out in this report repeatedly. And by the way, the report will be on the page that's uh, hosting this particular episode, so you can read it yourself. It's from Brazil, but it was translated into English. And among other things, it pointed out at several levels that management wasn't doing the proper oversight with respect to maintaining a certain level of training, documenting that training and giving direction and guidance for how they do their air operations. And this was a comedy of errors, fortunately not a tragedy of errors. There were minor injuries in both the truck and the helicopter, but nothing serious. And it took us a couple of looks to see it, but when you look at the video, when the rotors struck the truck, it jarred two people out of the helicopter, they fell to the ground. And in the report it said, well, those two people who were standing in the doors of the helicopter, because that was part of their procedure, because it was a police operation. They should have been belted in using certain equipment that was in the aircraft. They weren't belted in. So even at that level, the discipline that's necessary to operate in this sort of high-risk environment wasn't there. And they were lucky that this only resulted in a damaged truck and a helicopter that was written off and not with uh, any permanent uh, you know, major injuries or deaths. You know, they operate, this comp this police department operated two helicopters and one airplane. They had five levels of management over the operation. Only four of them were staffed. But you one would think, one would think that they would have more common sense than what's displayed here. Well, there's common sense issues throughout this, because when I'm looking at this, um, you know, helicopters in the middle of the road, road, road rotor blades are turning. I've never seen a helicopter in the middle of the road, so I really couldn't tell you if I were driving down the road on a routine trip I've done a hundred times, where I'm used to seeing all sorts of things on the road, from billboards to motorcycles to bicyclists, 
if I were to see a helicopter in the middle of the road, would my mind actually recognize it immediately as a helicopter in the middle of the road? There might be a bit of hesitancy as I try to say to myself, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And if I'm driving down the road at some large clip uh, rate of speed, I could be right on top of that thing before I realize that, holy smokes, I shouldn't be anywhere close to a rotating blade of a helicopter. And the fact that um, people didn't see each other, in fact, the report specifically said the truck didn't see the helicopter coming or in the middle of the road, and the crew in the helicopter didn't see the truck coming. Now, granted, the helicopter was pointed at right angles to the road, away from the lane where the truck was turning, and the truck was turning in a turn lane. It was a fairly wide road, and uh, the helicopter was would have been to the left side of their direction of, of travel before they made the turn. So it's reasonable to expect that they didn't see the helicopter. But you'd have to think, what would it take to have both sets of people, five sets of eyeballs in the helicopter, a couple of sets at least, I think three sets of eyeballs in the truck, neither one of them seeing each other? Hard to believe, but this is what happened. Or at least yeah. this is what is reported to have happened. Well, if you look at the video, you can see where the truck approached it. The driver's vision is high, so he's up. He's not parallel with the, the track of the blades, but he's up pretty high. So it may not have been clear to him uh, that those blades were spinning, given the angle that he approached it. But he had to hear it, and he had to be buffeted by the uh, down breath from those rotating blades. Although they didn't specifically say it. It was fairly obvious to me that the helicopter was in a position where the crew, either one of the crew in the front part of the aircraft, would have easily seen traffic passing in front of them. And again, if this were a U.S. situation, you have a helicopter in the middle of the road, and they're about to take off and they see traffic passing in front of them. Common sense would dictate, and most pilots would probably say, look, this is an uncontrolled area. There should not be any traffic at all. I'm not going to take off until the traffic stops rolling. Evidently, this was not a concern for this helicopter crew, whether that's a management issue, whether that's a common practice throughout the Brazilian law enforcement community. I don't know, but it just struck me as odd, the entire situation that was there. It was to my non-helicopter rated eyes, a high risk situation that should have been rectified, not just by the people on board the aircraft, but anyone involved officially in this operation. You know, it's definitely high risk. And, you know, I have seen some EMS and some uh, police department flight helicopters usually that operate in ways that raises eyebrows. You know, a week ago, I was down in the, in the, in Florida, in the Keys, Key Lago, that area. And if you read the papers recently, you know that there's been a big invasion of uh, boat people coming from South America through Cuba and landing in the Keys. Quite a few. In fact, the day that, one of the days that I was there, there was something on the order of 75 or 80 of them that came ashore. And they got these small boats and they're packed full. In fact, they found one boat that was totally empty, nobody in it. And I'm afraid we know what might have happened to those people. But anyway, uh, the helicopters, the, the, the Florida National Guard has been flying around the beaches, and I've seen them with their helicopters do some things that just I couldn't believe they were doing. 
with very, very low flights. Now, I know why they were doing that. They were trying to flush out anybody that was hiding in the, these mangrove areas that are around the, the Keys. Right? But I've seen them pass awfully close to poles right? while they were facing the other direction, hovering and moving around. And uh, they very easily could have found themselves impaled on a post. So it, it, uh, it you know, sometimes when you, you, you get, get it done-itis is what we used to call it. And when maintenance would do things that weren't right, you know, get the job done regardless. I can do this, you know, and that's a recipe for disaster. And even though in the military, from my limited military experience around aircraft, often there is a focus on accomplishing the mission. And even if it's a peacetime mission, a routine flight, uh, the the incentive is to get it done, not because it's any uh, bravery on your part. It's like, look, if we're assigned to do a mission that day, we're going to do that mission. And do we have to follow all the rules? Yes, we do. But the people who are running that mission, the people who are the crew in that, in that, that aircraft, have the authority to deviate from standard operating procedure if it if it uh, is necessary to get the mission done. That I understand. Now, there's also a risk assessment part of this, which is common in the military as well as the civilian world. Yes, it's important to complete that flight. Yes, it's important to get there on time. But the risks are too high, then that is the driving factor, not the fact that you have to accomplish a mission. So again, speaking about this accident we're talking about now, uh, from our perspective on the outside, there's a lot of things that don't make sense as to why they should have gone forth with this. Inside of their world, in my opinion, they had different incentives at work. They sure did. But there's so many procedures that they violated. So many procedures. I mean, you mentioned not being strapped in while they got this, this airplane running. Uh, no helmets, you know, this. It, it's just a just a sloppy operation all the way around. And the lack of uh, management oversight might play a role in that. A lack of professionalism might play a role in that. A lack of uh, accepting a standard that's not the standard that should be accepted, that was either agreed to explicitly or they looked the other way at the management side, is something that permeated this operation. And in this case, it ended up with the aircraft being uh, written off. Now, had there not been a truck there, had it been a little pickup truck versus a large box truck, this wouldn't have happened. But the same dangers would have been there. If not this, then there would have been another opportunity for an encounter between a vehicle and a helicopter that shouldn't be happening. Yes, it justifies description. And it was no emergency. You know, that's the other thing. There was, it was not an emergency situation. So, like I said, they had landed here the day before. Uh, just, you know, the real takeaway here is the procedures are in place. Follow them. You know, we're not all free agents, and, I'll, and I'm as guilty of this as many other people. When, when I'm looking to get a job done, you know, I know what the procedures are, and sometimes we didn't always follow them to the letter. But there's a reason why we have procedures. And if you're going to deviate, then you've got to double or triple your, your awareness 
and your vigilance that you don't make a mistake. This is uh, reminiscent of the classic risk uh, accident model of, uh, of, I can't remember his first name, reasons model, Swiss cheese model of, of accident causation. That is every safety system that you have, whether it's a procedural system, a uh, physical system, electronic system, et cetera, uh, is not perfect. It's like a slice of Swiss cheese. There's holes in that Swiss cheese. And if you have the right set of circumstances that happens to pass through every protective layer, finding a hole through every layer, you'll have an accident. And this is one where we had a whole bunch of Swiss cheese. We had a whole bunch of procedures. We had a whole bunch of technological tools, including restraint systems and such, that could have either prevented this outright or made the effects less serious. That is, you wouldn't have had people in the helicopter being injured. And the circumstances were such where something went through all those Swiss cheese slices and you had an accident. Now, fortunately, in this case, we have two things that happened that allows us to take some uh, knowledge away from this and share it with you. One, there was a fairly detailed report written about this with a lot of pictures and diagrams and such. So anyone who sees this and reads this can actually get some insight out of it and maybe apply it to their own operation. And also you have, because of the modern era that we have, everyone and their brother seems to have a, uh, and their sister too, seems to have a cell phone in their pocket taking pictures. And this is one of those cases where apparently some civilian just idly looking at this spectacle was taking a video of it. And we have a live recording of what happened and we can learn from that recording. Yes, I did a quick count while you were talking, and it's at least 10 different places where mitigation could have occurred in here. And any one of those 10 places, had the mitigation occurred, this event may not have happened. Yes. Yes. You know, one of them, which one that they mentioned and jumped right out at me is cones. No cones down around the airplane. Well, the reason why we put cones on the ground is because that's where, as a driver, we're all familiar with. That's where we would look for them. You know, so this driver may not have been looking up to see where the rotor blades were. And, you know, because if you look at the, the uh, video, the blades just caught the truck. It wasn't like they cut it. The truck got broken up, but the initial impact was right there. He wasn't, I don't think he was a foot into the radius of the blades. I so it was it was uh you know hold my beer we're gonna go <laughs> it's close call. Uh, let, let me follow up on what you said about cones by using a ridiculous example. Uh, like I said before, a helicopter sitting in the middle of the road is not a, a usual thing. You can drive for years or decades and never ever ever see that in your life. The first time you see it, it might be such a shock subconsciously that you simply won't register that. It's like a leprechaun riding a unicorn. It would be just that unusual to see that in the middle of the road. Traffic cone, on the other hand, if you drive around long enough, you've seen traffic cones of every description all over the place. And if you see a traffic cone, that usually means something unusual is going on, the road's being repaired, there's a repair crew. It's a signal to even your subconscious brain to pay extra attention. With no cone, no signal, no extra attention, they drive right by a helicopter and didn't see it. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, as I said earlier on when we were talking before the show, this is a nice one because there were no fatalities. No, uh, I think this was a, a European-built helicopter. They'll build them another one. 
uh, and everybody walked away. So from that point of view, it's a, a good operation, a good outcome, not an operation. Wow. Well, mate, I was wrong. Two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, uh, 19, not 10, 19 different places where there was a mistake made. So, uh, you know, just, what more can you say? And you just gave me a perfect entree into the next to last word. And that's this. Yeah, we're sort of wagging our fingers at this operation and the result. But the fact of the matter is, we have a situation here that is a rich environment for learning. No matter what kind of aviation operation you're involved in, whether you're on the ground, in the air, a student, looking through this report, looking at the visuals, the graphics, the video, can give you some insights as to what can go wrong and what can go right. And maybe, we hope, it gives a trigger in your mind. So if you come across something, you say to yourself, okay, this doesn't make sense. This seems risky. I'm not formally trained in this, but there's something wrong about this. Listen to yourself and take action. Yes. Yes. Good points. All right. I guess I get the last word here. And as usual, you know, we're going to talk about some training accidents in, in the near future. Uh, but, you know, when you're going to go out and fly, the rules say you need to pre-plan your trip. Whatever it is, shot one, long one, need to pre-plan it. You need to do that before you get to the airport. When you get to the airport, you need to do it again. When you finish that and go out to your airplane, you need to do a good pre-flight. If you don't feel comfortable with the pre-flight that you're doing, get a mechanic to walk around with you. I've, you know, I've been saying this for a while. I've probably gotten, uh, I, I bet I've gotten at least a dozen emails from pilots, including some airline pilots, that have said that they've changed their their pre-flight procedures after listening to some of our programs. So, yes, a pre, good pre-flight is very important. If you know what you're looking for, you know the critical areas, you go around. I mean, we're going to talk about some accidents that where the linkage to the elevator system and the rudder system, different airplanes, is exposed, and the cotter pins that retain the, the nuts on the linkage mechanism had been missing. And it looks like from the dirt that's in the hole that they were missing, and the one that I was physically looked at, that they've been missing for a while. So it's, it's uh, you know, a good pre-flight can save your bacon, baby. I mean, you really, you really need to do a good pre-flight. And then the other pet peeve that I have with all of this is after you get in the air, you've got to put that head of yours on a swivel. You've got to know what's going on around your airplane. You've got to have eyes on the sky. Don't get, you know, so fixed down in your instruments that you don't keep your head up and looking around because we're having far too many near misses and collisions in and around airports. Far too many. I'm hearing stories in the FBOs that I hang around in. I'm hearing stories about conflicts over and over and over. Local conflicts, no accident, but people coming in and out of the airport, one airplane being where it shouldn't be. You know, I see people doing circu uh, circular approaches, 
and they're not taking the, the proper precautions, and that's not an easy approach. So it's it's uh, you know it's it's really dangerous out there. And I think some of the accident rates that we're seeing or the accidents outcomes that we're seeing represent just that kind of risk. So please, if you're going to go flying, pay attention to every step of the way and please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.